Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you talk to people who work in overdose prevention sites, they also say that the impact is because people can take their time. Uh, because when you're rushing and you have, you know, this, you have your drug and you can't really take your time and split that and, and say, you know what, I'm just going to do half. I'll wait a little bit. I'll do another half because you're for sure going to use it all and as quickly as possible just to make sure that cops don't, you know, find that on you. How much do you know about harm reduction and are you aware of overdose prevention sites which are popping up across Canada? Thankfully, we're joined by Mary Lou, who is one of the biggest proponents of this movement and she literally saved lives along with a lot of other people in Canada. So thank you so much, Mary Lou, for joining us. You're listening to Stop and Search on Screwbiz Pips Distraction Pieces Network, brought to you by ACAST in association with UK. And I think this is one of those episodes that's going to change a piece of you after you hear heard it. It's incredible. Thank you so much, Mary Lou. Here we go. Behind your barricade. Yeah, but how long can I stay? Behind your barricade. Thank you so much for joining us. And as I said, we're joined by Mary Lou, who is just amazing. Just listen to everything that she she gets involved in out in Canada and globally as well. She's pushing the global conversation. And there's so many other people like Mary Lou out in Canada that are literally saving lives as we're speaking. There's a quote in this that really, really shook me. Uh, Mary Lou says that we're having conversations today for people that we know are going to die tomorrow. If you're in drug policy, then you have. You've seen people die so, so much. We're at an all-time drug-related deaths. We know people. You know, these aren't just statistics to us. They are people we know. I'm looking out the window as I'm saying this, and every so often you do get those moments in this in this field where you where you realise what we're doing, and this is one of them. So this is a special episode for me. Thank you so much, Mary Lou, for joining me on it and speaking about harm reduction and overdose prevention sites. Let's get straight on with this. Mary Lou does all the talking for us. Thank you so much. Right, so if it's okay with you then, uh, is it all right if I can get you to do an introduction? Yeah, my name is Marie-Lou Gagnon. Uh, I'm originally from Montreal, so hence the accent and the francophone name. I've been a nurse for 16 years, uh, but I ended up doing uh, my graduate degrees and did my PhD, ended up a nursing professor at University of Ottawa initially and now at University of Victoria. 
and I've done a bunch of things in harm reduction. Um, and what brought me to harm reduction is primarily HIV, because originally I was an HIV nurse. And I can speak to probably a few things that I've done um, over the past 10 years with respect to harm reduction. But right now, currently, I'm the president of the Harm Reduction Nurses Association, which was founded last year. So that's, that's going to be my first question, actually, because I've followed your work for quite a while now, because no no sort of over-egging the, the, the pudding, as it were, but you are such a hard worker in this sector. Unbelievable, <laughs> genuinely. We All of us in the UK take a hat off to you because you're just incredible. Oh. So could you, first of all, explain what the concept of harm reduction is and what it means? Because it's still, obviously, people in our sector know roughly what it translates to, but I think there are still people that have got a passing interest in drug policy reform that just don't quite understand what harm reduction means, what it entails. So could you give us a little bit of background? Yeah, and I think there's like no consensus really around like one definition. I think we all kind of understand it and come at it uh, from a different path and uh, with different experiences. But for me, it means looking for sure from a healthcare standpoint, looking at the harms um, created by a system where drugs are prohibited in the first place. So it's understanding that a lot of the harms that we see as healthcare providers are caused by prohibition in the first place and the creation of a market where drugs are unregulated, where also, you know, stigma is very high and people don't are finding it challenging to have access to healthcare because of that stigma, right? And they often face significant barriers because of kind of like an abstinence-based frame of mind that is very prevalent in healthcare. So harm reduction needs to start with that understanding of it, because otherwise you may be stuck looking at specifically, for example, just preventing infections. But unless you have kind of like that macro understanding of harm reduction, it will make your heart, your work pretty hard, right? Like you need to start from a very kind of high level. And then as nurses, we're very much also interested in participating and improving health and making sure that people have options like safer spaces where they can use drugs, for example, as opposed to using in a place where they might be alone or have to use equipment that is not necessarily sterile and things like that. But it really starts from an understanding that you're working in a system that creates a lot of harms and that you're working to diminish that and ultimately to eliminate those harms by transforming a system that is really not working for um, and I think that's been shown time and time again. So I, I don't know if that answers your question, oh, totally. but it covers, it's very, I would say covers a lot of things and you have to be prepared and committed to really looking at bigger questions and it's, it goes beyond providing a needle. Yeah. And that's, that's what's fascinating to me is that again, you're a nurse. So straight away you come into this from no position then wanted to make sure that people are safe. Um, because quite often what can happen in the, our broad subject is that, if you're slightly cynical, if you're a politician that doesn't necessarily subscribe to the to the reforms that we may be talking about, they they may think there's some kind of agenda behind it. But when you've got healthcare professionals like yourself uh, over in this country, we had the British Medical Journal that came out and said we need to legalise uh-huh. and regulate all drugs for yeah. the sake of harm reduction. Surely that's a difficult voice to argue with. Exactly. Yeah, and I and I truly believe in the power of all different voices coming together. And of course, what needs to be at the center of calls for drug policy reform and for improvement in healthcare services needs to be the people that are experiencing these services and that know what works for them. And I would never, you know, kind of side that uh, for a voice of a healthcare provider. But I think if we all kind of center that around the experience of people who use drugs and then as allies 
really show up, right? And and use that voice strategically. It's extremely powerful. And I think there's different sectors that could be doing that um, a lot more, I would say, like the healthcare um, professionals could be doing a lot more, I would say, advocacy and using that voice strategically because it is powerful, right? And and for politicians that may not be educated on the topic first <laughs> and then also have their own biases and their own assumptions and their own experiences and also like their own agenda, right? And And they, you know, of course see expertise differently and you can kind of play with that to change their mind but you have to do that strategically with an understanding of the system and what's ultimately your goal but that voice can be very powerful yeah you, you hit upon a point there that's so crucial and this is something because we recently uh, recorded with the british medical journal uh, and one of the things that we all talked about was the fact that we still particularly in this country and you may be able to speak differently there but we're not listening to the voice of the drug consumer. We're still mm-hmm. talking over them. What is the conversation like there? Yeah, I, well, I think in Canada, uh, especially right now, um, the groups that actually represent people who use drugs are very, very strong. They are often, I would say, you know, at the table with decision makers. They're at the meetings. They're producing very important documents like I don't know if you that just came out yesterday I don't know if you got a chance to see the the document that came out of the can associations of people use drugs on a safe drug supply and and actually kind of debunking the concept of it and providing guidance so I I think the organization their their voice is very strong but you know unfortunately I think it it still is not necessarily standard practice to center uh, what we do and especially around policies <laughs> around their experience and and making sure that you know policies can't be developed from the top down like they really need to start from the ground up and you really need to consult with people who use drugs to understand even if your policies are well intentioned and you th- you've done the research and it makes sense to you it may actually may make no sense to the people who use drugs. So you, I, I don't think we're there yet where in terms of creating policies that this is a standard, right? Um, yeah. And that's that's really funny you say that actually about the, the reform structure because one of the questions I do tend to ask a live audience is do they believe in a top-down approach or a bottom-up approach? And it seems to me that people in our sector that's, that's a bit more public health focused, we tend to think bottom-up. Whereas it can be a consensus in in certain other realms political realms or or certainly in in the cannabis world uh, people that are now investing in the industry they believe in the top down and i think that's potentially where if we turn this as a debate where it may be splitting a little bit where i think that people like ourselves are very much we have to be confronted with the with the drug not confronted that's the wrong term but we have to be there listening to the drug consumer because we're formulating policies that are going to helpfully, hopefully benefit them. So therefore, as you said, they need to be at the table. So presumably, as you mentioned there, there is a good network and a good voice and consensus there of drug networks and consumers. Yeah, and and, and a good example of that would be, for example, our governments here decided as a response to what they call the opioid crisis, we call this an overdose crisis because people are dying, Um is that they came up with this idea that we should really focus our our efforts on monitoring prescriptions of opiates uh, on on the part of physicians and and even if you go beyond let's say people who use like illicit drugs like people who 
experienced chronic pain were never consulted on this. Uh, and people who use illicit drugs were also never consulted about like the unintended effects that that could create um, for them. And then, uh, you know, we're now experiencing the effects of that where physicians are cutting off people, they're restricting, restricting their prescriptions, people are being driven to, you know, actually buy off the streets, and that contributes, you know, to a risk for overdosing and dying. And it's just like, it's a big mess, basically, <laughs> to put it simply, but that could have been prevented by actually a careful, you know, consultation process with people who are directly impacted and know what that means for them. And so now we're kind of faced with physicians who are scared, scared of losing their license, like, and we're going to be stuck with that for, for a long time, unfortunately. So that's kind of like one harmful thing that could have been prevented. You mentioned just a minute ago about legislation or that's been at least spoken about. Was that about how there potentially could be regulated fentanyl and, and things like that? Is that correct? Uh, when I was talking about the document that came out yesterday or? Mm, yeah. Yeah. The document that came out yesterday, there's two documents that came out on the same day. Uh, we're pretty much at this stage now in Canada, especially in British Columbia, where we're calling for a safer drug supply. Uh, there is no way out of this overdose crisis without providing people uh, with safer drugs. And, and that's ultimately the only thing that's going to work at this point. Uh, fentanyl is everywhere. And so yesterday was a huge day in Canada and British Columbia because both the Canadian Association of People Use Drugs and the BC Centre on Substance Use released their call for uh, a safer drug supply. And the BCCSU, which is the acronym, um, they are calling for what's gonna look like if it comes to reality and hopefully very quickly like a buyer's club um pretty much based on the idea of what people were doing back in the days of the early days of the hiv epidemic that's that's fascinating because this is quite often an example that we we do use is is the is the buyer's club um we've used it certainly in in regards to cannabis and medicinal consumers in this country how it's very similar to that so it's fascinating to use that example there because one of the things that I've found, especially following your work, is that there is so much peer-to-peer -peer harm reduction going on. There are people and communities looking out for each other. And that's, I think, and you're going to be better explaining this than me, but I think that that has pushed away quite a long, uh, that mm -hmm. you've managed to get reforms in place because of that movement. Uh, yeah, I mean, I would say whatever progress we've made um, since this current uh, federal government has has been elected, because prior to that, we were um, in a very conservative, conservative era with two uh, terms of a very conservative government that was anti-harm reduction. So since the liberals were elected here at the federal level, um, I do think that the progress that's been made is entirely because of people on the ground people who use drugs, activists, harm reduction workers, people who open overdose prevention sites when um, they were risking being arrested, losing their jobs. Uh, I would credit that community for every single progress that's been made um, because if people are not pushed and if we don't kind of take risks, like nothing happens. And, and despite all of that, despite you know, all of this, I think people, especially the international audience, needs to know that in the past two years, 10,000 people have died here in Canada. Um, four people die every day in my province. So that means like today we're talking, four people will die. Tomorrow, four people will die. And that's despite what I consider quite a bit of, you know, quote, progress in harm reduction. Like from the outside, it may look like Canada is a champion, but 
we are, despite doing that on paper, it might look good, but we are actually failing at addressing this crisis. So I would say the whatever progress has been made, which is, you know, not, obviously not enough because people are dying, but whatever has been made is definitely because of people on the ground. And, and this is why it's quite difficult to get across to certain people is that for certainly people like you, that this isn't a theoretical discussion. You're, you're faced with the people dying literally every day. And it's how can you not act and try and do something when you're in that position? And as you mentioned, you know, I've never had it put that way before that we're having this conversation now based on people's deaths tomorrow. And that is that is so hard hitting because it's exactly the same here in this country. We've got the all time record of drug related deaths at the moment um, with the leaders in Europe, especially up in Scotland. So this is why it's so, so such a privilege to have a conversation with you about the actual tangible reforms that are going in place. And one of the things that really stuck out to us is overdose, a pop-up overdose prevention sites. How amazing is that? Uh, can you explain <laughs> what that is, first of all? Well, it is amazing. And I have to say, being part of, of opening one in Ottawa, which is the capital of our country, and Parliament is five minutes away, was um, the best experience of my entire life. Uh, in my entire career, and I will probably never experience something like that ever again. But, you know, this was a direct response and it, to this crisis, and it started in Vancouver. So in British Columbia, which is the province most affected by this crisis, in April of 2016, they declared a public health emergency. Um, so just to put that in perspective, right, like that's April 2016. Now we're like February 2019 and four people are still dying every day. So just kind of like putting that into perspective and and really nothing quick was being done. It was really bad. And especially in the downtown east side in Vancouver was really being affected and still is today. And so a bunch of um, activists on the ground, community people, um, you know, created this overdose prevention society and then open the first pop-up and at that time I came that was you know in the fall and I I flew to Vancouver to actually see what was happening and to volunteer and to see what's going on like what is this pop-up overdose prevention site how are people managing it like I wanted to be part of it and see it and learn from it and I didn't know that a year later I would be doing the same thing in Ottawa but so it started there then Toronto opened one Ottawa open one. And for people who are not familiar with the concept, what it is, is basically the idea that you set up in a public space every day, you pop a tent. Uh, so hence the idea of a pop-up. So you pop up a tent that you will eventually take down or leave permanently, depending on your setting. Uh, for us, it was very much setting up and taking down every day. And then you operate an overdose prevention service um, for as long as you can with volunteers. And this is what we've been doing. And this is how it got started. And so we would basically provide very basic things like naloxone training, distribution of supplies, and just a basic tent where people could safely come and uh, feel welcome and take their time and split their drugs uh, and also, you know, just then use uh, and not be alone. And then if ever something happens, then you have volunteers there that are there to either monitor the person, to stimulate them, you know, calling their name, asking them to take deep breaths. And if ever that person stops breathing and becomes unconscious, you can administer naloxone and connect them with emergency services. 
Um, so that's how it works. It's, it's as simple as that. Uh, we've managed to do it. And because of that, created a standard where that service can now is now operating uh, across two provinces in Ontario and British Columbia. It's just incredible. It's just it's, it's so hard to believe, again, that, that people have just got together and done this. It's, it's, it's so inspiring. It really is. Yeah. And then I would say, I mean, I think what I've learned from this and it's been interesting coming at it with my experience initially as a, I did pre-hospital training. So I was uh, working on ambulances before becoming a nurse. Then I was an emergency and trauma nurse. Uh, so it was interesting coming at it from that background and looking at the, how impactful it is to provide a service where people can just feel safe and they don't have to rush. And, and it's been interesting how so much attention has been put on the lock zone. But when you talk to people who work in overdose prevention sites, they also say that the impact is because people can take their time. Uh, because when you're rushing and you have, you know, this, you have your drug and you can't really take your time and split that and, and say, you know what, I'm just going to do half. I'll wait a little bit. I'll do another half because you're for sure going to use it all and as quickly as possible just to make sure that cops don't you know, find that on you. And that alone reduces overdoses so much just because people are able to slow down and they feel safe in that space, right? So that is super powerful. It's such a simple but crucial point, isn't it? Allowing autonomy, someone's decision-making on how they're going to consume. It's something that, do you reckon that point alone, I was going to ask you what reaction you've had both from drug consumers and and that sector but also in regards to people that aren't remotely interested in in drug policy it just doesn't enter their radar what kind of mix of reactions have you had off of pop-up sites yeah uh i mean it i think every city had a different experience with it for us i would say what was amazing is the community of people who use drugs that community in that that neighborhood of people who are experiencing homelessness who who really kind of were in that neighborhood that we um set up and they really were excited about this they couldn't believe it they they were so impressed like they they were just like especially the first few days asking us like is this for real like who are you uh can i really come in like are you sure like is something gonna happen to me and who are you guys right and we would just we were a bunch of very diverse people and absolutely not like a healthcare provider background like we had very few nurses the rest were people that cared people that were either directly impacted had uh, lost somebody to an overdose or people who just really cared about their community and wanted to volunteer and and just a lot of people that are just really involved in social justice movements and we had food every single day. So we open, we operated for 80 days and every single day we had a homemade cook uh, meal, um, home cook meal um, and, and to for like our volunteers and our guests that were coming to our site. And people just did, showed up. Like it was so nice to actually see when you do something right and people recognize that they show up. I've had people pay for my lunch at restaurants like that recognize me and said like, oh, you're this nurse who's involved in the pop-up, let me pay for your lunch. And you know, the, the negative reaction was so minor, but I have to point out one thing though, <laughs> is that it was very minor, but media played it up a lot. 
And unfortunately, I feel that when it comes to issues like that, that really requires some careful reporting, solid background, fact checking, you know, the kind of really rigorous journalism, um, unfortunately, was not always there. And that led to very polarizing representation of what was happening. Unfortunately, the very small group that were hostile towards our site got a lot of airtime. This, this has been a point that we've addressed uh, previously is that the media has a big responsibility in this and if they're not addressing this because what they try and do and you, you can understand is that they go for this word balance don't they in, in, they, they want to go that 50-50 approach of giving equal airtime. but if it's a disproportionate view and that there is a minority that's, that's, that's putting a push against it versus 90% of people that are for it then that isn't representation, is that? That's that's a distorting the picture. So, how much of the the media has influenced this? What what has been the reaction broadly within within media circles? Uh, well, I would say again, like it depends a bit of like your local context. Um, you know, I think if I look at the coverage in British Columbia, it was a bit more, I would say, informed and grounded in a context, with a bit more kind of an education piece. Um, I think because there's so much harm reduction happening, um, you know, maybe that helped uh, for us. I mean, the two things that I've noticed uh, in this process was, um, for example, the importance of, of setting the like the stage for what's happening. For example, like our site was not the first one. It was actually the 26th overdose prevention site to open by the time that we opened. But media would often represent this as like, we're doing this thing that no one else is doing in the country, you know, which I think for the public is important to know, right? If you have a sense that like a, a bunch of people are showing up in a park and doing this every day and it's kind of completely random, your opinion might change. And if you're like, what? This is happening and it's been done and it's it's really impactful and can actually contribute um, to our community and saving lives. And it's been done elsewhere. You're like, oh, Okay, you know, like it's it's that difference, and also like the point I would say that really ended up creating work for us, but good work in the sense of now we have a document to work with. As we ended up working with lawyers who helped tackle the question of these sites being illegal versus unsanctioned, so media really kind of jumped on the idea that what we were doing, we were breaking the law, and that really kind of like started this narrative of law breaking people. And what you're doing is wrong and you're not following the rules as opposed to actually we're forced to not go through the sanctioning process that is normally required to open a safer consumption space in Canada because there is an emergency and no one is responding to it. We're forced to do that, but we're not breaking the law. So it's, it was kind of um, one point that, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we ended up working on this quite a bit. But... um this is what's fascinating to me as well is that overdose, present, overdose prevention sites aren't an uncommon factor in your country, are they? You've had them. You've had safe consumption rooms, haven't you, for a little while? Yeah. How long have you actually had? Um, because, again, this is something that we're just about having a conversation with here now in the UK, especially in Scotland. Uh, in Glasgow, um, it's been dubbed the, the overdose centre of, of Europe because you know that is where all the action is happening and people are dying. Do you think that the previous drug consumption rooms you had um, have had any kind of segue into the sort of harm reduction and pop-up sites? Are they related at all? 
yes, in the sense of, you know, we've had uh, Insight, the supervised injection site, uh, open in 2003. It was then, you know, ended up in the Supreme Court of Canada, uh, which then um, kind of created the framework that we're still stuck with. <laughs> and that framework under like a, a conservative government become very heavy, very like much like about red tape, making it really hard to open one. And then when the liberals came into power, they really tried to, in their words, streamline this process to make it easier to open a safer consumption space in the country. But it still requires like a lot of work to open one, uh, despite whatever they did to streamline it. Like, I mean, when you talk to people who go through this process, it's, it's very work intensive. It actually requires community consultation, which is something that should not be part of the process, um, in my opinion, and in the opinion of a lot of people uh, in, in this country. But, you know, it's just, it's still, it's, it's hard. And I think the overdose prevention sites were a direct response to the fact that the current system does not allow for safer uh, consumption spaces to, to be open very quickly to address a public health emergency. And you can wait years to open one. Uh, and it's not like a system that works fast and allows for lives to be saved right here and now. So the overdose prevention sites are actually very connected in the sense that they were a direct response to the failures of that system and the need for rapid action. And, and the need for very simple actions in the here and now, right? And so it, they're very much connected. And I think what that has created is um, pressure to try to get things done more quickly and also an opening for these services to be implemented more quickly uh, in different settings without a requirement that is um, the same as, for example, originally intended, like for insight, um, you know, Can from you a bureaucracy standpoint. Can you give me the uh, the statistic? Because I I still think that people are going to be surprised by this. But to date, how many people have died when there has been an overdose prevention site or a safe consumption room present? Well, I would say. Oh, you mean in those spaces or? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We haven't had a death exactly. in any of the safer consumption spaces, and that's true across the world, right? And I think by now, internationally, like we should have, ex I mean, I remember a systematic review that was published in 2016, they were saying we had 93 or something, 90 safer consumption spaces in the world. But I think with Canada adding so many, we're like way above 100 and, and people don't die in these spaces. They just don't. So I think that's important to note, you know, in terms of it's, it's pretty simple. And the solutions we know, we know what they are, we just need to do it. Did, am I right in thinking as well that I saw recently that there is the first in-hospital drug consumption room? Yeah, and I had a chance to visit, um, it's at the Royal Alexander Hospital in Edmonton, in Alberta. Uh, and they've actually integrated a safer consumption space in their hospital. And there is also, so that's the first uh, for sure. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it looks the same as uh, the other safer consumption spaces. Um, but it allows for people who are in the hospital to go use uh, in that space and also connect with the staff there. There's uh, interestingly also with the overdose prevention site model being out there, uh, St. Paul's Hospital in Vancouver also has an overdose prevention site uh, outside its hospital that is peer run. Um, so that's also an option. Um, yeah, so yeah, those are two examples again of like 
when people say, oh, this can't be done. Well, I like to think that once someone does has done it, you can then turn and say, actually, it can be done. So my hope is that by these two very, I would say, courageous hospitals that are like, you know, really responsive to the needs of, of their of the patients that are there and, you know, are applying I would consider this like an evidence-based approach and, and are doing the right thing that they can serve as role models for the rest of Canada and we can then push other hospitals to do the same. I don't even think just for Canada, I think that we've got a lot of eyes on what's going on in, in your region because that we're quite similar countries in the sense that we've, you know, we've both got healthcare um, and in it doesn't make any sense to us that we're not progressing the conversation around drug consumption rules further with regards to our politicians because we know that healthcare works we know that looking after society as a holistic realm also works and yet we're still not quite grasping how harm reduction has got benefits to all of us so could you just speak if you can about how these reforms not only benefit obviously real lives and people that have had their lives saved uh, but also how it benefits communities as well yeah and oh well, you know, for sure, the idea with any kind of harm reduction services, people always think that it's going to create more like um, crime or, you know, like that it's going to bring people to areas where they're not usually. And, and I, I, I think we've proven by now that it's not true, that actually people um, just want a safe place to exist and to access services and to find their community. And that when you provide that, it actually improves um, community safety overall for everybody, right? Not just for some, but for everybody, uh, that it doesn't increase crime, that people, you know, when we open safer consumption spaces or programs or services, like it's just, it's, it's where people are at already. So we're not like kind of creating suddenly like a, an influx of people, right? Like they're there, you provide the service where people are and you meet them where they're where they're at. So that's um, always kind of something that I find is people suddenly realize, oh, yeah, it hasn't changed anything really in my neighborhood. Actually, it has improved it. So I think people need to see it from their own eyes. And and they change they do change their mind, you know, even with our overdose prevention site in Ottawa, like a neighbor that was very strongly opposed to our site initially, ended up doing a complete 360 and then came to us and hugged every volunteer and said, like, I can't believe I used to think so negatively about this and I'm so impressed with the work you're doing and and then he ended up being trained with naloxone and left with a naloxone kit so I truly believe in the power of seeing it with your own eyes connecting with people getting real education and not sensationalist kind of coverage um, and actually connecting you know with the service providers the peers and and just making this like connection one-on-one and understanding at a human level um so yeah so i believe that that's what we've been seeing um what else what have we seen i mean we your question that like do you want me to expand in terms of even like the health impact or yeah any any kind of expansion you got on the point it really helps our conversation here yeah um well i would say these services in general have been proven also to work in terms of then people once that they're connecting to a service we know that the likelihood of them maybe addressing some of their health issues or maybe looking at um, starting treatment, which is not something that, you know, we always work with that goal in mind, but the likelihood of them starting treatment, if people who are really, really care about treatment, let's say, like 
that's really their where they feel passionate about, they should really care about harm reduction because harm reduction is the best way for people to actually access and start treatment. And and we see an increase when you have these harm reduction services, we see an increase in uptake of treatment um, because you need a starting point and harm reduction is a starting point. And then people can start connecting, you know, with services for their housing and social services and maybe reconnect with their families or, you know, address their food insecurity and work on things that are really important for their health. But it's really hard to do that if you don't have kind of like that bridging, which again, like harm reduction is really about that too. It's a starting point. It's a building a bridge. um, And it's really hard to get people to, you know, a point of maybe doing something like, taking care of a wound if you are not doing really good harm reduction in the first place and connecting and building relationship and trust. So I think we can see impact at the level of health, at the level of the community, at the level of safety, but also if people, for example, especially politicians that are very much interested in cost saving, I would say if that's the angle that you're really interested in, which, you know, is really not mine, (laughs) Uh, but you know, it's like an added benefit, I would say, because anybody who's looking at us from a financial standpoint is very much cost saving and cost effective. And there is no doubt about that. Uh, there's enough research out there to show how much money is saved when you actually do prevention and connect with people and provide their services versus waiting for them to get really ill or overdose and then require potentially like an ICU admission or something. Um, so there's all these benefits really. And it, and it's not like, there's a ton of benefits and I would say not a lot of negative impacts out there. Unfortunately, I think we just need to do a lot of education to make sure, um, that, you know, that people understand this and that they're not kind of amplifying the potential risk or negative impact when in fact there's there's not going to be any, but people really like to emphasize that based on their preconceived ideas. Um, I wrote an article about how cost effective um, in this country and using examples of of Canada, and it is, it's cost effective to the government coffers. And it strikes me again, if, if no other arguments resonate on saving lives, the fact that we've had, you know, no deaths, um, surely, cost effectiveness is something that can resonate with someone that's potentially skeptical about these these moves yeah and then surprisingly it's it's often not enough right because i think what we're dealing with is um ideas that are very much grounded in um you know drugs are bad abstinence is the goal um we shouldn't like you know kind of facilitate anything with respect to drug use and you know prohibition like drugs are illegal for a reason they're bad um and and i would say so those are the ideas that we're kind of facing often that takes over any kind of rational thinking (laughs) because it is based on values and and a certain understanding of the world and ideology so that's uh, that's harder to change i find the economic financial arguments can often just be an entry point to um, then expose a problematic line of thinking. So, for example, we could be saving this much money. So, as a public servant, as someone who's having to handle like and make decisions with respect to where we spend our public money, uh, you have to be held accountable. And why would you waste kind of this money when you could also invest in a better ethical? 
kind of approach that delivers results, but also really saves lives and, and, you know, also saves money. So I think it can be used in a, in a way to just expose the fact that you're making decisions based on things that are not evidence-based and that are purely value and ideology-based. And that is problematic if you're a public servant, uh, if you're, have been elected to, you know, work for the society as a whole and not just a certain subpopulation, you know, that doesn't use drugs, for example. So I think it can be used kind of strategically to kind of expose how irresponsible it is and unethical. And, you know, so I think that can be used in that way. And, and as you said as well, it's, it's fascinating the fact that if we frame this all around the drug itself, can potentially put people's backs up that are a little bit cynical to the issue but it's more than that isn't it as you just said you're providing meals as well you're providing potential first level outreach of someone on their you know we don't want to potentially promote recovery because it's it's again for the the autonomous individual to decide that themselves whatever route they need to take but the fact that you are managing to get vulnerable people into a conversation as well and just being part of society again that is Mm -hmm. just the most purest form of of just outreach isn't it yeah and everyone i mean we should strive for everyone to be included to have access to their basic necessities to have their needs met to feel safe um you know we shouldn't put people in jail for things that you know are starting from a place of of trauma or you know mental illness like we should approach everything i feel with compassion with also evidence and the proper experts and and listening to the needs of people who are in that position and say, what do you need? Like, what can we do for you? And at the end, that that return on investment will be huge. And and we just need people that are, you know, also serving that have that, you know, that understand this. So I think I do think that we need education and we need to make almost like this a mandatory (laughs) training for all elected officials to have a basic level of knowledge and understanding of social issues and health issues if they're going to make decisions about them and not to kind of assume that you know because they were elected they're necessarily qualified to make all the decisions and and to be proactively kind of educating them um and then if they are educated and are still making those decisions then you know i think you can really point that out and that's problematic but i do think that we need um, to work on that as well, like the general level of knowledge. And I can speak from my own professional community within the nursing community. Like it's hard to point the finger at politicians sometimes when I look at my own professional group and I look at nurses and how they think and how they treat people who use drugs. Uh, I think we have to also kind of start where we can start. And for me, it starts with also in healthcare and doing my part to change those mentalities because really... We also have a lot to work of work to do um, in that sector as well. That's certainly a remit that we understand as well, because obviously within Law Enforcement Action Partnership, we're we're there to have a conversation with the police and, and law enforcement services, and we're starting to find, especially in the UK, that more and more law enforcement voices are starting to question current policies. There's a lot more proactive um, voices that are actually doing things on the ground under some quite tricky conditions as well. Um, and you're right, this surely needs all services to, to join up and have these mutual conversations of, you know, let's not arrest our way out of a problem, let's not, you know, um, create a stigma as well, because this is, must be something that you have to see and address as well, is, is that word stigma. 
Yeah, exactly. And it's and it's huge. That's going to be a huge piece of work because really it is as long as drugs are criminalized, it, it will be hard to to change things, I would say. Um, and that's why in Canada, we've been really in the past year um, advocating strongly for drug decriminalization. I think you have to completely disconnect that the drug use and the way we approach that from the law enforcement side of things, it will be really hard to work within the current system. It is so harmful to people um, and it is killing people. I mean, you know, when people are like, oh, fentanyl is killing people. It's like, no, prohibition is killing people. Uh, fentanyl, if it's not fentanyl, it will be something else. Uh, and it's just how we set up this system. And so I think we really have to look at this and work towards it. And for us, what's been interesting in Canada, though, and I, I think that is good for an international audience as well to hear what's happening on that side of things here. But it's um, we've had two political parties where the membership have voted to pass a resolution for drug decriminalization. So that's pretty huge. And that's in the last year alone. And we've had a few cities also publicly calling for drug decriminalization. We have in British Columbia also like a willingness to do the work and see how we can do that provincially when, I mean, the reality is that this is a federal issue. This is a national issue uh, when it comes to uh, the criminal code and the Control and Substances Act. So um, so there's that piece, but I think it's, it's very much needed at this point. And it, it will be hard to do that kind of real change without removing drug use from the crime piece completely isn't there's no getting away from it is there criminalization equals equals stigma uh, and hopefully this is a conversation that we're going to have here in the uk more and more but how is it going there what what do you think you've just you've given us quite a good overview of, of the decriminalization process do you think that it could get there do you think that within the next couple of years we can be having this conversation and it will be de decriminalized I hope so. I feel that if the if there is a time, it is now. Um, I, the movement is, you know, we're building a strong movement calling for that here, uh, coupled with also like the call for a safer drug supply, which, you know, is also became very strong yesterday with the release of those two documents, especially one coming from a from a, an institute that is, you know, known for producing guidelines and things like that. So I'm I'm curious to see the impact of that. Uh, it will be challenging in the sense of we have a federal elections coming up uh, this year and whatever government is elected will be stuck with that government for four years. And, you know, what's going on in Canada right now is, is a bit uh, scary at times just because provincially we've gone through a few elections where very conservative governments have been elected. So I think we're going to be mobilizing to make sure that the outcome of that election is and, you know, going to be supportive of harm reduction. So that could also be a big game changer. Uh, but what's interesting, though, is that, you know, when the membership of those of, of two of major parties here are saying we support drug decriminalization. So that's a, that's some pressure on the leadership of those parties. Uh, it's going to be a tricky election issue to come to, to take on, to be honest. But the pressure needs to be there. And right now, there hasn't been a signal from the current party uh, that is um, in government right now that they're willing to go there. Um, but, you know, it's it's going to be a matter of putting the pressure and making sure that um, it's part of the, the conversation leading to the elections. 
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a It's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. From my, from my perspective, it, it just kind of think, why aren't you having that conversation more? Because, you know, Trudeau, first country to in the G7 to legalise cannabis. So surely the next step is a fuller decriminalisation model. But you know what's interesting? And that's been my thinking around because I, I'm, I am doing some of the work on the impact of the legalisation of cannabis on people who live with HIV. Uh, and, you know, it's been interesting, though, because we didn't really engage in a conversation of decriminalizing cannabis before legalizing. So we kind of jumped into the legalizing piece of it. And especially because I think it provided this kind of opportunity to create a market, to profit from it, to regulate it. Uh, but we didn't really do that kind of like decriminalization piece at all. And so if you look at the legislation in the country, like people can still go to prison. Um, so for example, if you try to sell cannabis to a minor, uh, you could serve up to 14 years in prison still. So I think that criminalizing piece is still very much in there, even though we've legalized cannabis. So that's where I find it problematic is that I think legalization of cannabis is a good example of why decriminalization needs to be done first. Uh, so if we had done that, for example, first with cannabis before legalizing it, that would have, for example, stopped the arrests that are uh, associated with cannabis. People would not have been going to prison and uh, their criminal record would have been like erased, for example. Like, so these are the conversations around decriminalization that should be happening, should have happened, that are not really, I mean done right now and we've legalized so i think that's a good example of why decriminalization is so important because it still kind of shapes our thinking around cannabis whether we like it or not and that's where it's really helpful to us to follow what lessons you've learned within this because the the drug law reform movement is quite quite strong here um as it will be across because we get a lot of listeners in the united states as well and obviously state by state their legalization process is going through but the conversation around criminalization can sometimes get put to the back burner in favor of, of kind of big business legalization. Um, 
and have you, have you found that that has Canada gone more of a business approach more than a public health approach on their cannabis legalization? Yeah, and I think that a lot of people would agree with, with that point is that we kind of miss that step of engaging in that, I would say, a trickier, probably like messier conversation around like decriminalization of people who've used cannabis, who've, you know, were selling cannabis or whatever in the past pre-legalization and are still, um, that hasn't changed for them, you know, and then what I'm seeing as well, for example, where... I think over time this might change, but initially a lot of the cities came up with very strict policies around, uh, for example, there's not going to be any space to go and smoke. Uh, so basically you can't smoke anywhere. Uh, if suddenly also like uh, condos and apartment buildings are coming up with very strict regulations where you could actually lose your housing if you're found to be smoking cannabis, whereas before like people did it and... So legalization has kind of like opened the door for, for example, also workplaces to start testing their employees. So through legalization, we've seen, okay, like housing is becoming an issue. There's really no place now where you can actually smoke. And I know people don't just smoke it, but I mean, the reality is that edibles were not included in the, in the, um, the initial piece of legislation right now, vaping it or smoking it. Like there's, it, there's no space that's been designed for it. Um, and then your workplace can start testing you for it. Um, and then like police are doing, um, road checks, uh, very aggressively. And so you have all these things, right? So legalization has brought that. Um, and so that often will push people to, for example, like use in their car because they have like nowhere to do it or yeah or it will lead to targeting of the same population that we know are already being targeted for example if you're homeless and you're smoking weed you could be ticketed so now we have tickets for example in victoria the city that i'm in i think it's a hundred dollar ticket so legalization has also kind of brought that so it legalization is not the answer to everything i think if you're still in a frame of mind of drugs are bad uh, and we're going to look for people who use them and we're going to like control and punish them in some way. It, you know, it's not going <laughs> to be ideal. And this is what we're faced with in Canada. Can I be nosy as well and ask that you just mentioned about the work you're doing with this subject and HIV as well. Can I ask what that's about? Yeah, I mean, I my work in HIV, uh, that's been most of my research and my career. And I've moved from looking at the experience of people who experience who have side effects and have symptoms and are trying to manage them to look at uh, who's using cannabis for that purpose. So for more therapeutic purposes, but outside the uh, medical cannabis kind of system, because for a lot of people, that system is not accessible. Often physicians don't want to prescribe. Uh, it doesn't work for them. So they often have gone through the route of using it on their, using cannabis on their own for their, for therapeutic purposes. And I'm curious to see, what's going to happen to people who are doing that pre-legalization, what's going to happen to them post-legalization. So I got money to do a longitudinal study and to interview the same people for three years. Uh, every year, talk to them and see, okay, you were using cannabis for maybe a bit of recreational purposes, but primarily because it made you feel better and, and allowed you to manage your symptoms. And post-legalization, what does that look like for you? Um, and then a, another year, what does that look for you now? 
how has that changed? And then a year later, so I'm going to have three years worth of interviews talking to people because I'm very interested about, again, the the kind of unintended effect of legalization, especially for a group of people who were really counting on cannabis to help them manage symptoms that often like healthcare providers don't really help them manage very well. It's amazing the parallels that we've got between our conversations because this is this is something going on as we speak about the UK have kind of got medicinal cannabis now but in practice it's completely prohibited still because it's going through weird systems that I won't get into now but it's it's completely fascinating to hear what you just said there that Canada did have a medical marijuana system um, can you just briefly touch upon how that worked and how it potentially didn't work and how it led to where we are now for the medical system yeah. for people uh, yeah I mean I'm definitely not necessarily an expert in the, all the specifics of it but what I'm hearing from people in terms of why it doesn't work is that first you have to go through a physician <laughs> and that physician kind of like is a gatekeeper for accessing medical cannabis. And so uh, then you're tackling like, you know, all the attitudes that physicians have towards cannabis, the fact that uh, physicians often like base their practice on guidelines. There's, you know, been for a lot, for many years now, a lot of guidelines out there to help them with their practice. Um, they often think that, you know, in their mind, they're also trained to think that way that, you know, I can prescribe a pill for your nausea uh, is really cannabis is really effective for you. So things like that. So you, that's the first barrier. Then through that program, you would be restricted to whatever the government uh, produces. So in terms of your access to various products and maybe ways of consuming your cannabis that works for you, like you would be limited in terms of your options. Um, and, you know, depending on where you live, things like that for access would be a bit trickier. And so when I talk to people and what kind of sparked my interest in studying this post-legalization is that people were saying how the current system does not work for me. So I'm better served, you know, by myself just to find a dealer that I can work with and just find a product that works for me. And then I can actually eliminate a lot of my medications and I feel overall better. And so that's where the questioning started for me. And I wondered how... Um, this kind of group of people is doing post-legalization because right now what this has created for them is that if they want to use, let's say, legally, and quotation mark, really, is that they have to buy it from the government. And right now that access is not, it's not that great. It's pretty expensive. Um, most of it is online. Uh, so it requires all sorts of like IDs and being able to pick it up and Canada Post will not deliver to your house if you're not there. There's like all these things. Um, so yes, you know what you're buying a bit more. You can maybe make more of an informed decision in that way, but it's expensive. Uh, for one gram, for example, two pre-rolled joints, it was 2686 when I tested the system myself. And so, yeah, I mean, it's 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 hard if you want to do it and through that route as someone who maybe is using it for therapeutic purposes and require maybe more of an amount that is would really be expensive versus someone who use it recreationally. Um, and then it also kind of exposes them to more severe punishment if they don't are not going the legal route. 
Um, so I think it's going to be interesting. There's really nothing that's been done like that before. So I'm curious to see and how what we can learn from people living with HIV for then people who live with chronic illnesses in general and are in the same situation. Yeah, please share the results with us on that because that's going to be absolutely yeah. fascinating. Yeah, and then that for me, physicians are the yeah the gatekeepers of access to cannabis for people who desperately need it and would benefit tremendously from it. And and to you know, I think we would be better off trying to like kind of go around that <laughs> that gatekeeping because you know just focusing on like it has to be through a physician. Then we have to work like really hard to change those mentalities and. And I think we would be better off to actually provide people with option and they should be able to make decisions from themselves. So I'm going to start to wrap up now because I, I can't believe okay. I had an hour and I, I need like another three hours with you because you just, you've just been <laughs> honestly amazing. I can't thank you enough for just how much you've, you've given us on this. Um, if you could speak briefly about naloxone distribution, why it's so crucial uh, and what your experience is within that field. Yeah, and and it's great because you've been referring to Scotland and I had a pleasure of going there in August and and speaking at the Scottish Drugs Forum. So it's really been great because all the examples that you're referring to, I'm very aware of. So that's great. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I would say naloxone distribution has been interesting in Canada because um, it has been implemented differently across each province. So we don't have like a national Canada-wide naloxone distribution approach. Every province has had its own you know, approach to it, own system, which has resulted with like a wide range of access to naloxone depending on where you live. Uh, So we've had, I would say at the two end of the continuum, British Columbia, for example, where naloxone is distributed in the hospital, can be distributed by peers and community-based organizations, like they're doing training in bars, like it's widely distributed, widely accessible. They have training online. They have a take on naloxone program. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot of naloxone kits available. And my first naloxone kit was actually a kit from BC, from British Columbia, because I lived in Quebec at the time, and Quebec went the opposite route, where it's a very controlled distribution, where you, with very long training, like a whole afternoon of training, and only a few pharmacies would deliver it. Uh, You know, it was like a very limited, and you would have to explain that you use an opiate or that you use drugs, to, to, and you need an ID card, like your health card, all these things. So I saw the both extremes. So as and I did like a piece in the media in the summer of 2017, where I went with a journalist to different pharmacies and I tried to access an naloxone kit in Montreal and Quebec and it was impossible. And so I did a lot of kind of using the fact that it was in a province that limited access to naloxone to say, hey, I can't get a kit and did a lot of media around that. And so that's kind of like the range in the country. And even though Quebec has changed slightly, it's still not ideal. It's still hard to get. So I would say that's the range of naloxone distribution approaches overall. Uh, I would say everyone who wants it should get it. Training should not be hard. You should not have to provide an ID card or your healthcare card. You should not have to pay for it. Um, and, And I think the approach should be a bit like the defibrillators that we have in airports and and hockey arenas and libraries where you know we really don't expect people to who are going to be handling a defibrillator 
in the context of a cardiac arrest to do CPR, to certify, to spend like an afternoon in training, to show that they've actually know what to do. We expect them to follow kind of these basic steps and we calculate that it's worth someone maybe doing it imperfectly because they will save a life than kind of obsessing over like making this complicated. So I would say naloxone needs to be the same as a defibrillator. We should also have naloxone in almost like a little box similar to defibrillator in public spaces, including libraries and bars and cafes and universities. And it should pretty much be a standard now. And uh, there are ways also of kind of addressing maybe the fact that the defibrillator kind of gives you instructions and in the states they have that pre-packaged naloxone syringe that gives you instructions that paramedics are using there so there's also ways of of kind of addressing the fact that people would not even have to go through training if we put them in those public spaces but there's really no reason to make it hard complicated or even expensive i would say and everyone that needs it wants it should have it uh, that's kind of my stance on things I don't want to turn this into a ghoulish question because it's going to sound almost because again we need to reinforce we're talking about real lives here real people that have got families um, but I've had it when I've had conversations on naloxone because some people just don't know what it is you know it's still a fairly new conversation here um, but if you if you say to people oh can you remember the scene in Pulp Fiction where Uma Thurman overdoses oh, yeah. uh, and that tends to be their kind of their thought process experience around it have you have you actually administered or been around it when it's been administered? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, in our overdose prevention side, we did have to administer it um, because we were operating an overdose prevention side. And of course, we, um, you know, we had to intervene in the context of overdoses there. Um, and, you know, we had nasal naloxone at this site. We also had injectable naloxone. Um, so yeah, I've definitely seen it. I've trained all our volunteers and how to use it. I know how people like quickly can learn about this and uh, their comfort level around it. Um, there's really nothing you can do wrong with naloxone. Uh, honestly, you know, what, what, what's it like to the person that's had it administered to them? What, what experience will they go through? Yeah. And that's where I think we are having conversations here around the harm reduction approach to naloxone administration because often people will kind of go very much like Rambo <laughs> naloxone and that's kind of my own expression here of like really go over the top because they're nervous and they feel like they need to intervene aggressively and naloxone takes time to act so you need to give it like a good three minutes and that's why you want people to feel comfortable doing rescue breeding because that's what you should be doing to give a chance for the naloxone to kick in, right? Because you don't want to be giving too much because what that will create is it will push someone into withdrawal. It will push them into a very kind of hard experience physically, like they'll experience like withdrawal symptoms, but very kind of acute rapidly. It will not be a pleasant experience. So giving naloxone shouldn't be harmful <laughs> also. So saving a life is important, but you need to also make sure that you don't kind of go overboard and push that person into a situation of withdrawal because what will end up happening is that person will then need to find uh to buy more drugs and and actually find another opiate to then kind of like manage that withdrawal and the risk of overdosing again is is greater so you do need to have a harm reduction approach to naloxone administration and also a harm reduction approach in the sense of 
for a lot of the people that we worked with, and I know that in supervised consumption sites across the country, that's the general consensus that you can do so much with oxygen, with stimulation, and just with monitoring the person that often you can actually work around someone who's breathing more slowly without giving naloxone. Where you really want to give naloxone is when the person stops breathing and they're unconscious. But if you have a bit of room to, you know, kind of work with the person and keep them awake and make sure and that you can always put that O2, O2 saturation monitor on the finger that will tell you, is this person properly oxygenated? Like, and, and, and if you have that, you can really kind of take your time and work with the person. And this will be the most important way of showing that you care about them and that you want to work with them and, and they will come back and they will, you know, trust you because they know that you get it and that you didn't give naloxone if it wasn't indicated. That's become quite clear in the conversations that we've had is that you, you, you're very good at acknowledging how the process is still being learned within your sectors as well. Like you said, it needs to be almost a harm reduction approach to naloxone. That, that's that's really interesting to hear. Um, so where do you think, with that in mind, the future's going within the broad conversation? If I was to have this conversation with you in, say, three years' time, what kind of conversations will we be having then? Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> Just put you on the spot. Oh, yeah, that's like a big question. I mean... I've been, imp I mean, it, for me, I'm like, a, I have a mixed feelings. Like I'm very kind of hopeful and inspired, but I'm also very kind of pessimistic and discouraged. Mm -hmm. And I, I have like these two views that coexist in me, which at times makes it hard <laughs> because I feel like I'm very inspired with what people around me have managed to do like with very little resources, with their courage and creativity. And I'm like constantly inspired and amazed with what we can do. But at the same time, I, I do worry about the fact that this community that is kind of leading the way is, is becoming increasingly burnt out um, and traumatized and stressed. And not a lot of people, they don't have a lot of like um, unlimited resources to draw from. They're at the front line. I worry on like the longevity, the um, longevity of it, the sustainability of of the leaders and and everyone in the community that's doing this work. So I do worry about that. But I feel like if we can find a way of like just building our strength and bring like more allies and really building a movement, that if we can work towards safer direct supply, drug decriminalization. And more expansion of harm reduction with less red tape. This is kind of where, for us, I see the next step. So I'm hopefully in three years would be looking back thinking we've achieved significant progress. Um, I'm also, you know, a bit concerned about uh, the government that's going to be elected next in Canada. So hopefully in three years, I would be talking about a government that is progressive and, and supportive of harm reduction. Um, and I really <laughs> hope that is the case because for us, what we've learned is that if the federal government can really limit um, our work and capacity to bring change. And so hopefully there's that. Um, yeah, and I would say my what I'm hoping to contribute right now is my attention is very focused on supporting the nurses and the harm reduction community so that we can start retaining our nurses, nurses in that specialty because there is a big turnover. Uh, people leave, so all that expertise leaves. So I'm trying to like focus on mentorship and support and training and changing 
the education of nurses around harm reduction. So that's like also a lot of work. So hopefully in three years, I would report back that we've made progress at that level because we need to do better. Like, and I can only do my work in my own professional community, but I can say that nurses need to do better in, uh, in respect, with respect to people who use drugs and the level of care that's provided to them and general approach. So I would say that's kind of like what I'm aiming to do and, we, we've, and contribute to. And we've had uh, very brief conversations about the drug supply system. You know, in this country, we're talking about heroin-assisted treatment. You just mentioned, we've mentioned before about fentanyl and how there potentially could be a regulation on that. How far along is that conversation and do you think there's going to be any progress within it? Well, I think that yesterday, those two reports coming out is like a huge step that we've, we, you know, really, there is unprecedented in terms of um, having that real conversation beyond just like, oh, this is what we need to call for to like, this is how we're going to do it. And this is what we need to do next. Like, that's the first time that I see something very concrete presented. And, and British Columbia will have to do something. I mean, it is faced with just like a completely out of control public health emergency that there's no level of harm reduction right now that is slowing it down. And so I think it will need to take some drastic steps. I'm pretty confident that something will be done within the next year and in the sense of like something more concrete. There is, uh, the momentum is there, the crisis is there. Like we absolutely have exhausted all the other options. And if something happens, it's gonna be in this province. Um, So I'm glad that I'll get to, you know, be part of people that are putting pressure and witness whatever change comes for that. And and I think the idea is this, yeah, we just need to provide people with a safer drug supply. That's it's as simple as that, really. And it's it's not that hard. And so I yeah, I think this is the if it's going to happen, it's going to happen here uh, in this province and it should happen as soon as possible. I mean, ideally yesterday, but you know, I think if it if it's if there's anything pro- that's going to happen, it's going to be here for sure. I think the only way that we can make progress internationally on this is to all work together and to make sure that we don't have to reinvent the wheel. If someone has done it, we should like take their stuff. We should all share and really share openly. I think that's been the thing that I've learned from our Canadian experience here is that as long as people are open, they share. Um, it's all about being strategic, working together. We can do so much. So thank you so much for joining us on that. We've learned so much from you. And hopefully we will speak to you again very, very soon with some more progress and some more knowledge of, like I said, you're a step ahead of us and we need to learn from that. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. (laughs) So thank you so much for listening. And yes, I think you'll agree. Amazing. Let's save some more lives. Let's get some lives saved in the UK. Let's save them in Europe. We need to, don't we? We really do. And there's... I now need to do our thank yous, which obviously thank you to Mary Lou for everything. And thank you to the two Johns. Thank you to John at the Distraction for Pieces Network. Please listen to his podcast, The Dream Factory. Thank you to John Cross at Leap UK and our shout outs. If you want to find us on Twitter, at UK Leap. If you want to find us on Instagram, it's at UK Leap. Our Facebook, at UKLeap.org and our website at UKLeap.org. Thank you to Tristan and Nikki, the producers. Without them, you'll be listening to Radio Silence or just me babbling into a dictaphone. And thank you so much to My Name Is Ad for all the artwork you do, making this look pretty. And, of course, listen to the Distraction Pieces Network, all of them, brilliant shows, making some great podcasts out there. And 
I also need to thank you everybody that shares this as well because we've got some brilliant people out there that do share, subscribe and, and do all the thumbs up and, and all that sort of thing. Uh, especially George. Thank you so much, George, for everything you've been doing. You are one of our biggest fans, if I'm allowed to say that. Thank you so much. So if you can do that, if you're listening to this and you're enjoying what we're doing, if you can go to iTunes and give us a five-star rating and a nice review, it all helps. Right. I think that's it. If not, I apologise. But i already got the next episode lined up. Sorry for the break in this one because there was a month delay. Uh, I won't bore you with the details, but on my word, everything went wrong. Laptops, health, you name it, it went wrong. But I think we should be back to regularity now. Right. Thank you so much again for listening. See you again soon. Bye. Behind your barricades Yeah, but how long can I stay? Behind your barricades Where true values seldom stray Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.